Since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen, in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together. By connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Hello, and welcome back to the Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Every two weeks, we craft a double feature of films connected through one element or another. The only caveat, those films must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We also highlight new additions to the collection, hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. My name is Ian, and this is my lovely friend and co-host, Mackenzie. Hello! Hello! And (laughs) this week on the show, we are starting with a fresh pick from Yours Truly, which Mackenzie will be connecting to at the end of the episode. But for today, we will be discussing the hotline suspense comedy, Spine 821, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, directed by the great Stanley Kubrick. But before we get to Kubrick talk, which will likely be up and down, Mackenzie, how's it going? (laughs) How you doing? What have you been watching? (laughs) Uh, It's going. I'm doing okay. Could be better, but I'm vibing. I'm existing and I'm alive and I'm watching movies. Um, uh, I won't talk about it too much because I talk about it a little bit on this week's ADP. Uh, we're womp womp. I had to watch Black Adam, but yay, yay. <laughs> we were joined by Sophie Shin. Uh, but I talk a bit about it a bit. I only want to bring it up because I, I want to recommend it to you again, Ian. Taylor Mack's 24 Decade History of Popular Music. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to hear me talk about it more in depth, swing over to ADP. But it is a performance artist named Taylor Mack who uh, has create who a couple of years ago did a literal 24-hour show, uh, cabaret extravaganza, where... Judy and the audience both were there and there for 24 hours going through the entire like American music and history. And it's very queer. It's about our country. It's very telling. I think it will resonate with a lot of people who are feeling a lot of fatigue about the way politics are uh, and being queer and America feels like right now. Um, it's really amazing. And I want to recommend it and uh, talk about it more over there on AP. But I did also check out two films on the channel this week. Look at me actually using my Criterion channel subscription. Um, quickly want to touch on a movie that is not in the collection, The Barefoot Contessa. I think I mentioned it when we were talking about our editions. You did, uh, I was boy. like, my boy Bogey. I'm, I like weirdly miss watching him in movies. I was like, I haven't watched a Bogey movie in like a month and a half, two months. And I missed him. I was, it was like coming home, seeing my man again. Um, stars with the amazing Ava Gardner. It's a good movie. I think I gave it three stars. It's like the epitome of like three stars is good. Uh, I mostly want to call out for people who are just interested in that era of film. Jack Cardiff famously, we re- we saw his work, I think uh, with our, Powell and Pressburger double feature because he was the Powell and Pressburger cinematographer for most of their works. Um, the movie looks gorgeous because he shot it. So if you like Jack Cardiff as a cinematographer and just want to see a really gorgeous movie, it's a really, really pretty movie. I think Bogey's really great in it, even if he doesn't always have a ton to do. Ava Gardner is great in it, 
even though her character is underdeveloped. Uh, but when they are together, it's amazing. So their scenes together are very, very good. I do think the film for me suffers a bit from just kind of a muddy script. I wrote it in my review. It wasn't quite sure if it wanted to be like a character study of an actress. So I'd rise to rise and fall right from fame, or if it wanted to be a drama of this, you know, washed out film director played by Humphrey Bogart, or if it wanted to be a romance between, you know, various individuals that show up in this film. Um, Mm. It it was a little too muddy. It couldn't quite decide what it wanted to do. So it just didn't do enough of any of it. It also has some (laughs) noir flavoring in there, which I think, yeah, it was like the opening is very noir-ish in terms of like ends, it begins at a funeral and is like, I bet you're wondering how we got here, huh? Like Mm. that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Tell me what one thing say? about this movie. Uh, what is, because uh, I know Ina Garten, I'm very familiar with your girl, but what yes, is the barefoot girly. Contessa? What is, what is that? It's her, like the, so Ava Gardner plays this woman who is Spanish, maybe? It's kind of unclear. Um, And yeah, they find her in Spain, but then they go to Italy. And she has this like monologue in the beginning about how she doesn't like wearing shoes. And it's like, I'm probably, I'm going to undersell it so bad, but it's like, she's barefoot often. She's like this beautiful, glamorous woman, and she's discovered by Humphrey Bogart, who is a film director and his producer, who both are kind of enamored by her, and they sweep her up into the kind of Hollywood lifestyle. And she like doesn't like to wear shoes because for the longest time, she grew up very poor, and I think for the longest time, the only shoes that fit her were like uncomfortable hand-me-downs, and so... When she was living through war, she would take her shoes off and she would go sit in the dirt and like put her feet in the dirt and it made her feel connected to the earth and would like calm her down. And so she like, it's again, it's one of the scenes that's actually very well written because it's her and Humphrey Bogart. So she kind of has this, this thematic element of like, she doesn't like wearing shoes, I think from it's like a trauma response kind of, but again, the film doesn't really want to interrogate that more. So the namesake is Ava Gardner's character, but they kind of only touch on it a little bit in the film. And then yes, there was a, then in the late eighties, a specialty food store named after the film, completely unrelated, just a little specialty food store. Ina Garden bought out this store um, in the late nineties. And uh, she ran it for a few years until she kind of, uh, you know, blew up as a Food Network personality, and uh, since the Barefoot Contessa store has closed down, and now the Barefoot Contessa is just my girl Anna Garden. It's just the name she uses. But yeah, it's it's uh, there's not really a correlation between the two, other than like I think the original owners, like I suppose, enjoyed the film and wanted to name it that. I guess. But there you go. There you go. There you go. So what was the other uh, one then you watched on the channel? I must say, I rambled too long about the Barefoot Contessa, but I wanted to say, Ian, I don't know if you noticed, I did check out Rouge, which is a film you've recommended to me. Yes, I did. Um, I checked that out. I was, I'm excited to start getting into the Stanley Kwan melodramas, which I think just hopped, like that That series just went live on the channel. But Rouge yes. has been up for a while on the channel. Um, and yeah, I finally checked it out. I was totally not expecting it to be a ghost story. I don't think I knew yeah. what I thought this movie was. So I was very like surprised by it um once you get into it and you find out that it's just like this kind of ghost story romance thing but it's also kind of um 
Stanley Kwan is really smart in the way he's sort of interrogating our ideals of romance and like what like why are we like why do we watch things like The Notebook and we think that that's like the the aspirational love affairs we should be having when like I love this kind of idea of this young couple experiencing this courtesan ghosts love story and yearning for a love like that but also being like but our love is also good in its own way and and maybe being normal and in love is also a healthy thing to want and um i thought it had a lot to say about the way we love one another and the way we put pressure on our own relationships to be something that they're not when they can just be what they are and that can still be good and all the while it's this kind of fun ghost story. Like I really, I, the, the score, the score gets kind of synthy, right? Cause it's this mid, mm-hmm. it's like this late eighties. And I was, there was like a couple times where I was like, it's giving and not in a negative way, but it's giving goosebumps. Like, cause there's like, cause like she would just, <laughs> the ghost would just kind of float into frame and it'd go like, Bling. Yeah, like these little yeah, like yeah. synthy like it's a very goosebumps <laughs> soundscape uh, yeah. and uh so yeah i really enjoyed it i just want to let you know i watched it. i didn't really write a review on it but um i did enjoy it i gave it four stars i thought it was yeah. great i'm excited to check out more stanley kwan um yeah Summer we're just fabulous fantastic it's a difficult watch but it's like well worth it. it's one of those things i talked a little bit about this with todd haynes's uh i'm not there i don't know if mm. on the show but i know i talked about it with you it's like it's difficult and it's uh maybe not something that immediately you fall in love with but it it's great and it requires repeated viewing center stages like that and that's with maggie um maggie chung uh, yeah from i love her for love and she's phenomenal she's um, an irma like, vep too and she's really good in that i love irma vep um but yeah rouge is a phenomenal film that catches you totally off guard no matter how much Mackenzie has talked about it there's still more to discover yeah like i definitely yeah yeah Yeah, i didn't want to spoil and it's great yeah and it's and it it recently got added to the collection spine number 1129 so we could do an episode on it one day if we ever want to do some stanley kwan so that'll be great but ian did you watch anything fun this week i actually haven't like stalked your letterbox to see uh, what you've been up to. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we had family in town, Frankie and I, so I didn't get up to that much. But like I was telling you before we got on air, I was able to get the entire family to go and uh, see Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson, and hopefully a future addition to the Criterion Collection. Um, I absolutely love this movie. I'm not going to say that much about it because you put all of my thoughts and more into such beautiful words on Austin Danger podcast episode with Kev. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but if anybody wants to know how much I love that film, just go to Mackenzie and Kev's episode (laughs) on it because Mackenzie and I were DMing like crazy after I finally caught up with it. Just like about the discourse surrounding Wes Anderson, but also about the film itself. It is such a beautiful film. It's, you know, I, I, I know I can say this for you because you've said it many times to me and also on podcasts now, but like it is your one of yours and I's favorite Wes, like immediately. Like, yeah, it shot right to the top for me. Um, I think it's his most emotional and personal work. And I know that like that's a big debate people are having in the cinephile and letterbox communities like. Anyway, 
I, suffice to say, I loved it. My family loved it. My partner, Frankie, she loved it, which makes me so, so happy. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, yeah. But other than that, um, I, you know, I revisited our, our gal, our gal pal, Nora Ephron. Uh, and I yes. think I inspired you too as well. Indeed, uh, I, I Frankie, did. Yeah. <laughs> I showed Frankie, Julia, Julie and Julia. Um, which she also really loved. I was just really knocking them out of the park with Frankie. Wait, that um, was a first watch for Frankie? Yeah. Frankie oh, loves I did not know Efron. that. Yeah, that's yeah. why I would have assumed that she'd seen it before. Yeah, but as as you know, and our listeners might, you know, slowly be coming accustomed with, Frankie's not really a movie person. So she's seen Sleepless in Seattle. She's seen When Harry Met Sally, which is not her favorite. Um, and she's seen Gasp. You've Got Mail, which is my favorite, but alas uh, she's finally seen julie and julia we loved it i mean that's i was telling you this but i think that's my favorite Meryl performance um she's great man yeah but after um having edited down my once again long tirade through my entire week in movies i briefly want to touch on ingmar bergman's the passion of anna which i watched last night as i was procrastinating my viewing of dr strange love um and this movie as just seems to be the constant case with ingmar bergman blew me out of the water um i go into i go into all his films so far being like they can't all be persona they can't all be bangers and i almost am like telling myself you have to give this one four stars like you cannot just give another five star banger bergman because like that's just so basic. But once again, I couldn't resist or help myself. Uh, Passion of Anna is freaking amazing. Um, and there's this funny thing that happens. Like, I don't know if you've ever noticed, Mackenzie, maybe our listeners have, but when I rate something five stars, I usually like write like a quip. I write something funny, or a lot of times I don't write anything at all because I'm like so. Uh, I'm so deep in like the processing and moving. Yeah, I'm so emotionally charged and I can't really formulate thoughts. Bergman films do that, but they also like, they almost like inspire me too. Like I am, Mm -hmm. I am so overwhelmed and inspired with like thoughts and feelings about humanity and art. And specifically with this one, this movie is about truth and art. And I don't really want to give anything away, but like it is just such an emotionally rich and dense text. And he uses a framing device throughout the film in which he has the actors, uh, spoiler alert for a 60 year old movie, Passion of Anna. Um, He has the actor sit down and asks them like, what do they think like the central truth of their character is in this drama? And it's this really brief and beautiful um investigation into each character by the actor performing that character and you've got his like best of the best cream of the crop stock company players you've got Liv Ullman, B.B. Anderson, um Max von Sydow and the one I always forget Erland Josephan. Erland Josephan famous from scenes from a marriage Mm. um where he played Liv Ullman's um, counterpart in that so-called marriage. Uh, but um, yeah, just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I've seen just in the past two months, The Silence and Through a Scanner Darkly, which have like, and Cries, Cries and Whispers, which have all like 
entered my like personal just favorites of all time and the passion of anna was no exception um phenomenal phenomenal film i love it i gotta check out more bergman oh my gosh you're inspiring me it's the it's the it's a hundred dollars i dropped on that box set you know what at the end of the day it's a hundred dollars i spent that could have been four discs four or five discs and it ended up being 35 so you know yeah uh, i think good bang for your buck thank you very much so yeah yeah well um mackenzie before we move on to our main event we have a, a brief news item that mm. we need to yes. we need to touch on and that is that the barnes and noble sale is live so uh happy buying happy hauling i guess uh <laughs> yay 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 consumption um but also <laughs> this is like just one of those times where it's like we can justify buying ourselves a crap ton of movies if we can afford it and make space for it um i know it's not possible for everybody i myself uh, have to be a little bit conservative this go around i cannot mm-hmm. go crazy like i have in the past and you know i don't know about you mckenzie but i've also personally just decided to not like go crazy regardless of what my situation is like i just want to own the movies that i love yes and the same i will say that i have started i got one thing but i'm not going to tell you about it right now <gasps> because we are going to do a very special mailbag style episode at the end of this month um we're gonna you know get what we get and we're not gonna we're not gonna spoil it for the listeners maybe we tell each other off mic who knows um, but we also want you, the listener, to email us. Send us your voicemails. 90 seconds or under, please. But if they go slightly over, that's okay, too. Tell us what you got. Tell us what you're excited about. You can send those emails and those voicemails to thecriterionconnection at gmail.com. Don't forget that the in the front of our show name. It's thecriterionconnection at gmail.com. And we're just going to save all of those till the end of this month. And once that sale's over... Kenzie and I are going to record a special little bonus, talk about what we got, talk about what y'all got. It's going to be fun. And uh, yeah, so once again, happy hauling. Um, Don't go crazy, kids. Well, um, with that out of the way, Mackenzie, I'm looking forward to it. But for now, it's time to talk about one of the greats, I suppose, the master, Stanley Kubrick himself. You suppose? <laughs> I suppose, you know, we, I, we'll get into it. We're still Bring recovering from our takedown of Fellini two weeks ago. <laughs> We're going to savage another titan of cinema. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Who knows? Who can say? Let's, let's go ahead and ease into it. Go ahead and bring us into the world of Cold War paranoia. 1950s and the beginnings of Kubrick's career with Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Stanley Kubrick's painfully funny take on Cold War anxiety is one of the fiercest satires of human folly ever to come out of Hollywood. The matchless shapeshifter Peter Sellers plays three wildly different roles. Royal Air Force Captain Lionel Mandrake, timidly trying to stop a nuclear attack on the USSR ordered by an unbalanced general played by Sterling Hayden. The ineffectual and perpetually dumbfounded U.S. President Merkin Muffley, who must deliver very bad news to the Soviet premier. And the titular strange love himself, a wheelchair-bound presidential advisor with a Nazi past. 
Finding improbable hilarity in nearly every unimaginable scenario, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, is a subversive masterpiece that officially announced Kubrick as an unparalleled stylist and pitch-black ironist. With Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I would love to know your history. We talked a bit about it a little smidge last week, but this is where we're getting into it. I want to know your history with Stanley Kubrick and possibly Dr. Strangelove as a film as a whole. What's the vibe? Well, the vibe is that this is probably the first film that we've covered and one of the few films in the Criterion collection that I have an extensive history with. Wow. Um, Yeah. I saw this movie when I was like eight years old for the first time. My mother is a big, like, political science nerd. She went to school for it. She got her master's in it. And uh, I was a kid who was brought up on national public radio. And I, like, knew what the Supreme Court was and how they made decisions before I, you know, was in middle school. And so it's just one of those movies that was, like, one of her favorites. And I was, like, kind of forced to watch it. But I just remember actually really loving it and finding it very funny i mean i grew up watching like monty python and mm-hmm. kind of with that 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 version of humor that comes from the mid-century british school of like comedy so like peter sellers was like very familiar to me like when i got my first library card i checked out like all the pink panther movies so like it, it is i think of it very fondly and i have like a very treasured relationship with it that goes obviously back like more than half my life um when it comes to kubrick on the other hand like i had no idea who stanley kubrick was until basically like three years ago outside of like just you know that his films are totemic and that his films are widely known and like some of the most popular films in the western canon uh but like i've never really had that great of an affinity for him or all that I shouldn't even say that I don't have all that much knowledge of him because it's almost impossible to exist as a cinephile um, without a vast knowledge of Stanley Kubrick, at least in my experience. But you might prove me wrong, Mackenzie. Hmm. What's like been your history? Hmm. I'm curious to know, what's your history going back as far as like you can remember, if absolutely any? And what's your history since you've really gotten into movies in the past couple of years with Kubrick, Dr. Strangelove, etc.? Yeah, it's funny because... I'm trying to think back as far as I can remember. And it might be high school. Like, again, he's, I think he's one of those directors. You've just kind of heard his name probably at least at some point in your life. But in high school, all of my associations with him were very, very negative. Um, Because when I was in high school, I was trying to get into books again. And I was not doing very well at doing that because I was one of those people that I think a lot of people can relate to is, you're an avid reader as a kid. And then when reading becomes this like intense school requirement, you kind of lose that passion for reading. And I was trying to reclaim that in high school did not do well because I was like, I have to read these like 
these iconic, these iconic books that everybody talks about that everybody knows. And, um, I remember around that time I was reading a lot about Lolita and was completely disgusted by it and reading about like his movie. And I was like, this guy seems like a creep who would write this book and who would read, watch this movie. Obviously, uh, I've listened to the Lolita pod. I have a lot more context for the original intentions and possibly what ended up happening with Kubrick's adaptation that were not, was not necessarily the original intentions of the person who wrote the book. That's a whole other fucking episode of probably Lolita pod. Go listen to that. Um, but one of the iconic books that I was seeing in all these bookstores was a clockwork orange. And I was like, Oh, I think I've heard of this movie. I think. So I'm some like 16, 17 year old girl. Who's like, I don't know what this is. I'm going to check it out. Put it on the TV. I get to the initial scene and I am horrified by what I'm seeing on screen. I was not ready or aware or knew what to take with this and was just completely upset and was like fuck this guy i'm never gonna watch a movie by this man turned it off and i just kind of never thought about it again and then in college i had a really really good friend who loved dr strange love like that was like one of his things was like his favorite band is the pixies and his favorite movie is dr strange love and I, he was like really cool and we loved music and so i always was aware of dr strange love in a more positive sense because i was like oh my friend my friend ivar loves that movie but i never watched it so I think those are all of my early, like pre I'm a film person now associations with Kubrick was just like, for some fucking reason, when I was 16, I tried to start Clockwork Orange like a moron with no prior awareness of what the movie was and was horrified by it. And then I just kind of never, <laughs> yeah. never did it again. And I think I had written him off as a director and then just kind of never felt like I wanted to watch his films. And then I was pulling up my diary in 2021, halfway through the year. I've watched all of my Stanley Kubrick movies in July, weirdly, a year apart. Every every time mm. I watch a Stanley Kubrick movie, it's in July, which I'm I just I'm very noticing on my diary. It's very strange. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I watched The Shining because I got given it uh, for the 70 millimeter discord roulette and i had a lot of really loaded weird feelings about that because at the time there wasn't as much debunking about the treatment of shelly duvall in the set of that film and i don't think it's worth getting into because it's a lot of a lot of different opinions floating around about that but at the time i was bringing a lot of that kind of like i know this story and i don't want to really engage with this film because of the real life stuff with it and i think that halted me from enjoying the shining and i also thought it was just fine i thought it was visually very cool but then like the story i was like pretty uncompelled by and then i think a couple weeks later i was like okay i'm gonna try another one the killing is in the criterion collection and i've been really into noir lately let me watch this and i watched that and i hated it and i thought it was really boring and i was like i'm watching so much amazing noir right now and this one sucks yet another L for old Kubi. And then um, I was like, I'm not going to watch another one of these man's movies. I just don't have interest in it. And then, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. About a year after that, 2001 A Space Odyssey came to my local theater. And I was like, everyone says this is the one. Everyone says, go see it in a theater in 70 millimeter. I'm going to go do that. Uh, and I was famously bored out of my mind and I thought it was visually stunning, but I really could not get into the vibe of the film. It's a film more than any of his other films I've watched that I do want to give a second chance. I do want to watch it again. Um, but I tried to quote unquote do it right and it just did not click with me. And so I've always been just trepidatious to watch Kubrick's films. 
Um, and so Dr. Strangelove is actually the last film I watched by him about a year ago. Um, and I would say, as I'm shifting us more into Dr. Strangelove combo, after I watched this, this was my fourth film by Kubrick, I was like, is, this is the first one that works for me, I think. So when oh, I first well, watched it, I was like, this might be the first Kubrick that I actually vibe with. And now it's been about a year since I've watched it. And this is my, re my first rewatch of Dr. Strangelove. And I do think the humor landed for me even better on the second watch. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so that's a very long and sorted history with Kubrick as a director. I think he's one of those directors that so many people I know just love immensely. And I've never been able to mm -hmm. grasp him. But um, I do enjoy Dr. Strangelove a lot. And I was glad when you picked it, because I think this is the one Kubrick I can like speak really highly of, at least that I've seen so far. Yeah, I don't think the long history that you, you know, gave is absolutely, I don't, I wouldn't say you were rambling at all. I think it, he almost necessitates it. Um, even when you work backwards, even when you go back to the killing and Dr. Strangelove, he is somebody who benefits from the context. I'm not really that big of a fan of any of the films that you mentioned. In fact, I think the my favorites besides this one, spoiler alert. Um, Y'all know what we think. I have a heart on my. Your rating, your ranking um, of Kubrick is on your profile. I yeah, saw publicly. Exactly. <laughs> so, I, I, the the ones that I love the most besides this one, you haven't seen yet. Mm. I, I I I I don't think Eyes Wide Shut would really be your thing, but I I think Barry Lyndon could definitely like stand a stand a shot of being your thing. Um, he just made so many different movies. They were all different. I'm not the biggest fan of the way The Shining looks. I love My Dear Shelley, so it disheartens me, the story that you're referring to, but I also think she's the best part of that, I almost agree. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, anyway, just to add that further context, but yeah, no, Dr. Strangelove so benefits, I think, from repeated viewings, not just a, a first rewatch, but I can't wait for you to like come back in a year when we're still hosting this dingy little podcast and say like, I watched Dr. Strangelove again. It was even funnier because like I was having the most rapturous like time just at like 10 AM this morning, like with, you know, the, the, the most cliche of lines from this is like, you know, like there's gentlemen, you can't fight in here. It's in the war room. Um, I, and I, I, I find that for me on rewatch, the things that actually become, much more funny are the more mundane aspects. Um, I actually find Strange Love, the character, and let's maybe maybe this will just like start off with this. We'll start off with Sellers. Please. I find um, I find Strange Love to be the least interesting and least funny character in Doctor Strange Love. I feel like he's necessary. I feel like, I mean, the kid me thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Like, mind Fiora, I can walk. As like a young Jewish kid, I thought that was like so funny. Um, <laughs> like. Just like, you know, this ridiculous caricature of like an ex-Nazi. But nowadays I find it somewhat annoying, actually. But no, I find Muff Muffling. And um, like, first of all, that name. And uh, yes. Mandrake's my favorite performance in this. I think it's so funny. Um, everything from like, I've lost the string in my legs, sir. To like, you know, the monologue he gives while Sterling Hayden's Ripper like just goes into the bathroom and kills himself. Like, <laughs> it's... 
very dark but very funny like yeah what are what are your what are your sellers impressions and thoughts well it's funny because i do think that when i watched it a year ago i was like this i'm charmed by this and i like it more than my other kubricks but nothing really stuck out to me and even i'd heard about seller's performance a lot and i, I maybe i just wasn't paying as much attention because this watch i was so struck by his performance he is it's kind of mind-blowing to me how different he's able to be and i know that's just him being a good actor like rachel's heard me ramble about this i used to hate those twitter things that was like you know blank actor understood the assignment and i'm like they're doing their job they're an actor that's what they're supposed to do um and so i know it's on slip but i'm saying this about peter sellers now but like he is so just chameleon like in the way he's able to like because even like I was watching Julia and Julia the other day, right? And I think that's a great Meryl performance, as you pointed out. And there was a moment where Meryl, as Julia, was like crying. And she did this like, this pause where she pulls her throat back a bit and pauses and then lets it it kind of bursts it out. And I've seen Meryl do that a bunch, if that makes sense, in other films where she's emotionally charged. And so I was telling Rachel, like, I can see the Meryl in this. For me, uh, and that doesn't mean she's a bad actress. That just means she's an actress I recognize. But for Peter Sellers in this role, I, I I feel like he lost himself completely in every single role he plays in this in a way that is so impressive that like, I think the first time I watched this, it even took me a little bit to figure out they were the same actor. Like the first time I watched this, I wasn't really aware of that kind of stunt casting of him as three characters. So I was like, wait, this is the same guy. And I, and I, I feel like now that I know that I can still even have that feeling. And I would agree that on this watch, I was like, of the three characters, I do think strange love is the least funny to me. Um, which is funny. Cause I know that like, he was he's the most, Oh, what were you say? He's the most, uh, he's the most like obviously funny. Yeah. He's very slapsticky kind of in a way. And I, I found for me, the president was who I thought was the funniest character. Like the, the yeah. part that made me laugh literally out loud today was after, um, you know, the situation is explained to him. Uh, the, the president just has this hilarious, like Peter Sellers has this tiny, tiny, just like flabbergasted look on his face. I'm just like, what the, f- yeah. what the fuck did you just say to me? And it's just like in that little <laughs> moment of no lines, just like facial acting is, was so funny. And then obviously all of his phone calls with Dimitri, I wrote in my notes, yes. do you think him and Dimitri have explored each other's bodies as a joke? But like, <laughs> he was so funny with Dimitri um, being like, Dimitri, yes, of course I want to just call and say hello. Uh, I love yes. talking to you, Dimitri. <laughs> like, I just thought that the president was like, yeah, he definitely, I do think that like strange yeah. I understand that he's iconic, but like, uh, I, I found the, I just find, yeah, I found his other characters more compelling, but the president is who got me on this watch. I thought he was really funny. Yeah. That one scene that you're referring to specifically, I also like just cackle. Like I'm not, it's, I think it's one of the funniest jokes ever is just like, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old formula, you know, like you only hear one side of the phone conversation. Yes. But, uh, you know, you are left to fill in the blanks. But it's just like, of course, I love to say hello. This is a friendly call. It wouldn't be getting it if it weren't. Uh, You know, just that whole rat-a-tat-tat with himself, um, I think is one of the best scenes in the movie. Um, It's funny you say this about Sellers, though, like how he just falls into character and almost disappears. Um, I'm rewatching the Beatles Get Back documentary, which is like, something I rewatch all the time and it never gets logged because I never really finish it because it's eight hours long. <laughs> um, but uh, Sellers shows up in that and oh, wow. he's so 
awkward. <laughs> he was like not a human being. Like there's nothing there. And apparently, just upon like brief investigation on my part, I guess the lore around him is like there was no one there. Like the, one of the reasons he was so abysmal in personal relationships is because Sellers did not have a personality. He was just the characters. Oh, wow. So when he was these characters, he was so, I guess, easily able to fall into them and become them because he didn't have a personality himself, um, which like, I think like just goes to like i think you're you're coming to that like organically unless you move this yourself no, which um yeah i mean almost like confirms that on my you know on my part i feel like like it just makes so much sense like meryl and julie and julia uh hope we don't do what we did with eight and a half here uh, <laughs> secretly <laughs> no i'm kidding um Mer- meryl somebody who like shows the work and that's not a bad thing sometimes it's really fun to see the work um, mm-hmm. And Meryl also does things like she has ticks and she has signatures. I that love I an actor with yeah. a signature. Yeah. Like I was talking about Bergman's company in our, you know, at the top of our show and like Bergman's company, like BB Anderson has some signatures. Like she has some things that she does with her hands and the way that she tilts her head. Like they're, they come up again and again, her performances. It's not like, but sellers. Yeah. Like Mandrake and Muffley are like really close in tonality. I mean, they're not very, like, they're not drastically different, like Strange Love is to these two characters, but there's, I, I know, I know that they're the same guy, but like, I, they feel so different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, like, and the two of them just being, they're so, they're so underplayed in opposition to Strange Love, who is so bombastic and a character. Um, but I'll say this, and like, Please, 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 please get me back to Sellers if you'd like to, because I, I love talking about Sellers, but I was surprised by how funny I found George C. Scott in this film. And I think it's because I'm older. Um, <laughs> uh, like, Buck Turgidson is, like, so funny when he's, like, so horned up and just wants to get back to screwing uh, with his secretary in the hotel that we meet him in. Is like, the phone call, like, where he's talking to her and he's like, you know, like making all these euphemisms using like language about atomic bombs and shit about how he's going to like rock her world. And I just find it so funny. And just his general demeanor is like, um, this like bombastic arch conservative, like general. I think I found it funny this time because I'm older, but also just because the world has gotten so (laughs) divided and scary and like actually kind of like messed up. And like that's heavy and like the real world is a scary place but like there was like a lot of perverse humor in this for me coming from the place that i'm coming to it in 2023 because of that type of person that i know for a fact is real and like Mm -hmm. is like here's the word communist and immediately has this like false image in their head of like what they perceive as a communist like from propaganda and they don't actually understand what these dichotomies are and like I don't know. I'm I'm getting off track here, but like George C. Scott, like is really just took it and ran away with the movie for me this time, like never before. No, I, uh, yeah, I do think that like, this is one of those movies that just is going to continue to age well in a bad, like in a bad way, but also a good way. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels like one of those movies that you watch and you're like, how is this still relevant? And it's like, 
Oy vey. I feel like I, I, I see a lot. There's a lot of movies. I feel like of that of that ilk where you where it's commenting on a certain uh, time and culture, and it's one of those where like, has anything ever changed, really? Hmm. Uh, which could fall, make you fall into a depressive little uh, little mind hole there. Mm-hmm. But I will say, yeah, George C. Scott was I, I think also a standout for me in this watch. The way that man chews gum is so wild. His like <laughs> his like chewing gum. The part that made me laugh really hard with him was when his. I I, I think I thought it was his girlfriend but i guess i didn't realize it was secretary when she uh calls was- him when they're in the war room and he's like talking about he can't talk to her right now i don't know why the line where he was like um i deeply respect you as a human being i'm gonna make you <laughs> mrs turgidson uh i thought that was really really funny um and then you know obviously his like kind of clash with the russian uh ambassador was also very funny but yeah he was cracking me up especially like when he's describing the situation because when you hear him describe it, you realize how stupid it is, like how stupid it is that a random paranoid general could have caused, you know, World War Three, basically. Um, like, like it's hearing like the combination of him attempting to explain this moronic scenario that they have put themselves into to the president who as Peter Sellers is reacting in like the funniest way possible because he's doing these little bitty looks of disbelief at Dorsey Scott, like them playing off each other. in that scene, I think was like the funniest scene to me. It was um, him just being like, and why was he able to start nuclear war? And he's like, well, sure. You uh, approved that order and you signed it. So surely you remember like that. Cause it's like, yeah. you know, obviously like everyone says it, but like, they're just, <laughs> it's just Kubrick being like, yeah, the stupidest fucking guys on earth run this shit. Like the stupidest, idiots who are the most paranoid conservative assholes are the ones who uh have their fingers on the on the buttons and there's something sad but also like hot funny about that and i think you know obviously it's just scenes like that where they're just being very dumb i think obviously sell the humor a lot in this movie yeah it's all just one big it's all just one big dick measuring contest for these people yes um yeah which is like obviously like Kubrick's being cheeky in the beginning with uh, the fueling of, uh, you know, airplanes. Okay, and that was supposed like, to be I sexual. Mean, I was like, <laughs> when that okay. happened, I was like, excuse me? I was a little like clutching my pearls yeah. when that happened. I was like, is this supposed to be a penis? What's going on? Yeah, no, Kubrick's kind of a freak. Like, he's a in, freaky little guy, yeah. Like, he's a freaky little guy. Uh, I mean, I think, I think the time has come, Mackenzie. Like, let's get into it. I mean, what do you i mean what, what why do you think this works for you in opposition to kubrick's other stuff like i'm, I'm just curious like because it does for me obviously um not to you know not to lead with the uh lead with the i don't know what i'm trying to say you know like yeah i want to like let's unpack this a little bit like why are we such kubrick like eh, people and this just seems to work i'm not sure honestly because like I think of my issues with like my issue with the killing and maybe I should give that movie another chance. I just remember being really bored by it and being like, it was a lot of just like narration instead of showing, which I know is part of noir, but I just thought it, it made it a really disinteresting film to me. I I couldn't get into the heist element of it. 
uh, I was just bored by that movie. Um, and then both like with the shining in 2001, they were both like visually stunning films. And like, I, I do genuinely think the last like 15 minutes of 2001 are amazing. That's like mind blowing movie, but like, it took me so long to get to that last 15 minutes that blew my mind that like, that's not enough to make me love the whole experience. And again, that's a film I really want to give another chance. And I want that rating to exist, like to, to heighten hopefully in the future, the shining there's just like an emotional baggage there that i can't quite get rid of I, so i'm not sure maybe it's just the 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 perfect storm that like uh i don't know that like none of those elements or i guess are present for me with doctor strange love because where maybe i don't dig the story of 2001 or um shining or the killing like i really dig the story here it's really simple it's really straightforward there's so much humor mined out of that uh, I, it's just, I think just as visually appealing as the shining in 2001 that are obviously two of the greatest looking films ever made. I think this is also beautifully shot, gorgeous black and white cinematography. I think this is like on par with it visually. Yeah. I don't know. Like Kubrick is one of those directors where I can't really quite put my finger on why he doesn't vibe with, why I don't vibe with him. And I, and it's, it's, yeah, I feel like I'm not being very articulate here. Cause I, I, I'm not really quite sure why this one works for me where the others don't. And maybe this is the time now that we're, I'm on the heels of Dr. Strangelove. Maybe this is where I watch a Barry Lyndon or I watch an eyes wide shut or even hell a clockwork orange. And I see like what else is out there for me with him and see if, if maybe Strangelove is a fluke for me with him or if there's just, it just depends on the film. I'm, I'm really not sure. Like, do you have an idea of why it's this way for you? I oh, I want to lead with this. I um, I think satire is something that's incredibly hard to do. Mm. I usually hate it. I mean, in most recent memory, we have our, you know, Doctor Strangelove, you know, aspirational wannabe auteur, and I think Adam McKay, um, who's making films like The Big Short and Don't Look Up, which are like trying to get at issues, but also from like a funny satirical way. And they always fall flat for me. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's just one example. There are so many, um, you know, singular filmmakers out there that are trying to do satire and it always falls flat for me. And I feel like it really works here because I think it's actually funny. Like mm. we talked about just a few of the moments and I think that's what it is for me. I think when Kubrick's being funny, it's very enjoyable and it's a great synthesis of all of the back end and below the line talents that he's able to assemble with master trades people. And also just like in his knowledge and love for movies, like he obviously loves movies. We talked about him on the All That Jazz episode very briefly. Like he was a patron of cinema. Mm-hmm. Like he, yeah. and he loved that movie. And he was very, I think, uh, admiring of people who were trying to do revolutionary and experimental things with the art form um so i think when you combine that with like this like wry kind of sly horny humor that he has i think it works i mean barry linden is a very funny horny movie eyes wide shut is obviously very horny but it's also i think underappreciated for how funny it is and i mean just between you me and the listener i don't eyes wide shut is not that horny it's kind of like showgirls and it's attack on sexuality like (laughs) It's there are naked people, but that doesn't necessarily make it erotic. Like mm. I think those move I think those two movies and this movie are really interested in the follies of human behavior mm. 
in ways that The Shining and 2001 are not. Those are more philosophical and grander in scope, and they don't work as well for me. Well, yes, they are so beautiful. The Shining is gorgeous and very symmetrical and very good, just very nice to look at. 2001, at this point in my cinematic journey, I go back and forth on that one, but at the end of the day, it's really just not for me. Um, I totally get it. As well. Um, but yeah, no, like Dr. Strangelove works because of how funny it is. And so does Barry Lyndon and so does Eyes Wide Shut. So my, my personal uh, thesis on it is that Kubrick just needs to be funny. <laughs> um, I've seen everything except A Clockwork Orange and I've heard mixed takes on that. I've heard it is funny. I've heard it's not funny and it's um, upsetting, um, which would track. Uh, I, th- I guess it just depends on who I'm talking to with that. But like Lolita is uh, decidedly not funny. That's a disgusting movie. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not commenting on the book or Lolita as a whole at all. Um, go listen to Lolita podcast, Jamie Loftus Rules. Um, yeah, it's a really good, I feel like, overview of the changes Kubrick made and the why it's not yeah. good. It's just like Lolita is like a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I mean, yeah, all so many words to say like the guy just needs to be funny like and like he was working with amazing collaborators on this like terry southern who i think was like a relatively uh repeated a collaborator maybe not always in the credits but also like a friend um and then sellers like the things that you might read about strange love is that like sellers was as much a creative collaborator as like um uh as much as like leon vitale who was in Barry Lyndon and quit his entire professional acting career to work as uh, Kubrick's personal assistant um, and collaborator. Like, apparently, this guy was so enamored with the way that Kubrick made movies that he gave up his very promising acting career to work as his personal assistant. And after Kubrick died, he was in charge of all of the 4K restorations and the legacy and mm-hmm. the library, etc. Anyway, yeah, apparently, when he wasn't, you know, uh, torturing Shelley Duvall emotionally. <laughs> he could be very jovial and collaborative. Um, anyway, we don't need to get into Shelley Duvall and just turn into all the things we don't like about the man. Uh, but yeah. No, so yeah, that's my I think take. that's funny because <laughs> I, I don't think he's a, a director that I feel like people label as like a comedy director often. But yeah, like this movie is really funny and I agree with like that there are people who like, it's, I don't know, there's like this feeling of like good satire feels so dead nowadays only because like, it's I, like, I personally hated don't look up. I know I don't really, that was another movie that like yeah. was very divisive because everyone felt attacked from every side, whether you loved it or hated it. And everyone felt dumb and everyone was fighting about it. And I was like, why are we fighting over this movie guys? It's an Adam McKay movie. I, I thought it was very bad. I thought it was very well, poorly done. And yeah, there's a subtlety, there's a deafness to the humor in this movie that I think not only makes it very, very funny, makes it very, very clever, very intelligent while still like being a being like easy to digest humor. Um, but I do think it's what has led to its longevity as a comedy. Um, because yeah, because it's just it's it's oh gosh, not to be one of these but it's one of those they don't make them like this anymore kind of comedies. Like it's it's harder to pull this off nowadays because I think about like where politics are now and like 
what actual real politicians, especially on the far right, are doing is more kooky than anything they could make up for like a satirical film that like I think it's harder to pull satire off now because like kooky stuff is happening constantly with our real life politicians. And so, yeah, I, f- I feel like maybe I think that just the world has gotten to a place where I do think satire is harder to pull off. Maybe uh, like maybe that's why I'm not there. It's not resonating with me in a more modern sense, but, th- yeah. but this does, I think this is a really smartly made film. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to take it too far away from the film, but like, yeah, I think, I think, the president before our most recent one, I think at a certain point, a lot of people realize that like you can't make fun of this stuff because what's happening in the real world is so much more ridiculous than anything I could put down pen to paper. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is the fact that like they're, I liked how you put it such a deft hand. Like it's subtle. It's not over the top and it's not, um, you know, somebody standing on the side of the road, waving their arms at you to fly you down. Like, they are trusting you like the filmmakers like kubrick is trusting you to get the joke like he's not actually going to show you an erect penis in the beginning of this film he's just going to show you the refueling of a plane and just let you you know be like ah i see what you're doing there stan (laughs) like i don't know it's also i think just goes back to what we were talking about with like sellers like the manner in which the comedy plays out is just so underplayed. I mean, and also just is like something I was alluding to. This is just really observing the follies of like man, like not humans, man. Um, And just like the, the like pitfalls that masculinity will lead to and just like being too proud to say that like, this is all stupid and like we should all just go home and you know hug each other i don't know i just was sitting there laughing at a lot of the political context in this because i'm much older and i understand more but i was also just like wow war really do be dumb like what are we even doing pulling out our cocks and putting them on the table sorry to be crass but it's just like this what this is it's not this is there's no point to this y'all are just like talking about fluoride and talking about going down into bunkers and outliving each other for what and for what i mean that's what it feels like politics is it's just this giant pissing contest where the richest people keep pissing and the rest of us have to suffer and um every once in a while it's fun to just laugh at the stupidity of these people even though they're actively ruining so many lives uh you just you escape a little bit with a kubrick film and and maybe get a couple laughs in at these people the hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. Not now, but anytime, Dimitri. I'm just calling up to tell you something terrible has happened. 
It's a friendly call. Of course it's a friendly call. Listen, if it wasn't friendly, you probably wouldn't have even got it. They will not reach their targets for at least another hour. Mom McKenzie, any final thoughts and or a star rating for Doctor Strange? Yeah, no. Um, I don't know if I have a lot of a lot of thoughts we haven't already said. I just think it's a really well done movie. It's a tight ninety. Got to mention, amazing runtime. Love that chef's kiss. Uh, it's tight. It's funny. It's succinct. It makes me laugh. It grew for me, I think, a bit on this watch. I could see it continuing to grow as our country gets uh, more and more uh, completely off the rails and I need something to laugh at. Uh, I think today, this is kind of where I was last year. I'm not sure if I'm ready to go all the way five stars with Cooper quite yet, but I am at four stars. I think this is a very, very good movie. I think it's very funny. I enjoy it. I could see myself watching it again. Um, I might have to grab it at a Criterion sale sometime and just have it in my collection because um, I think out of all the Kubricks I've seen, this is definitely my favorite. And I hope that this is um, the start of me maybe being able to, to open my heart a bit more to Kubrick as a director because I do enjoy this one and I think it's really, really well done and just really funny, amazing performances. It's fun. What can I say? Yeah. All right. Yeah. What about you? All right. All right. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I really, I really love this movie. I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those films that I have such a long relationship with that there's a lot of nostalgia for it. Like, it's in a very, very, uh, unique canon with You've Got Mail and Raiders of the Lost Ark, like films that go way back for me, mm. um, regardless of how aware I was of their pedigree or the crafts, uh, and shit behind it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like I, I briefly want to parrot a couple things that you've touched on, like Ken Adam, the production designer on this, uh, famous for James Bond, defining the look of James Bond. This movie looks so cool for a satire and it doesn't need to look this cool. It <laughs> takes place in three different locations and each one of them is sick. Like the war room looks amazing. So cool. Yeah. And like, it's Kubrick, so I think we go, we've come to expect that from him. But like, this wasn't 2001 Kubrick. Kubrick wasn't really Kubrick yet. Yeah. Like, yes, he was making movies his own way by this point. Like, he wasn't taking shit from anybody. Like, this is the first time, though, that he's like, he's made like Lolita, he's made Spartacus, and he's conceded on things. Like, this is the first time that he's like, I'm not going to take anybody's bullcrap. And so, like, this thing looks like. James Bond 2001 and like, I don't know, election to just throw it with a satire. I, I, I don't know that much about election, but I'm just trying to say like it, it encompasses so much in such a short amount of space. Yes, 93 minutes, so tight. Um, and then, yeah, like it's so funny and I really have loved getting to watch it every couple of years as I get older and get more aware of what's going on in the world, even if it is kind of sad. <laughs> uh and depressing it, it, it is a, it, it's almost a bright spot it's very fun to watch this somewhat smugly and think that you know everybody in power is so stupid and we are so smart um this is a five-star movie for me um wow. yeah i i don't know what's going on mackenzie because i have like 75 movies rated five stars on letterboxd you have like over 200 or something Oh, I'm a five-star bitch, yeah. I know, and I love it, and I appreciate it, but like, <laughs> but on this show so far, I am like five stars, like throwing them out like Oprah. It's, we've just been covering great movies, but yeah, I love this movie 
I had to go to my previous review of it on Letterboxd and take my star rating off. Um, <gasps> but if people look at my, you know, Kubrick ratings as of today, July 6th, we're recording this, like, Dr. Strange Loves is in the top three. I love that movie. I'll be adding the five stars back in three days. <laughs> love it. I love it. Well, um, you've got a great pick coming up very shortly. But before we get to that, we do. we do have a letter. We do have a voicemail. I'm very excited to dig into those. I just want to remind the listener, once again, we want to hear what you're buying at Barnes & Noble. We want to hear what you thought of Dr. Strangelove. We want to hear what you thought of Eight and a Half and our All That Jazz pairing. Or anything else we're going to cover. Anything else we have covered. You can send emails about all that or voicemails to thecriterionconnection at gmail.com. And we look forward to reading or playing them on the show. But for the time being, Mackenzie, I believe we have a voicemail from our good friend, Robert. We do. Let me get that plan right now. Hey, Criterion Connection. I love the show and listening to your thoughts on all of these great Criterion movies. Over the pandemic was when I decided to start watching as many classics and whatnot that I could. And of course, that led to a lot of Criterion watching. And hearing you all talk about them has made me really want to go back to some of them with some new insight that maybe I didn't like as much at the time or um, that I didn't get as <laughs> much. Um, so it's been great. But I wanted to send this in weeks ago about another connection to Eve's Bayou. The stuff kept getting in the way. And then I saw that this movie is leaving Criterion Channel this month. So I had to call to implore everyone to check it out. The movie is called Kane River. Uh, like Eve's Bayou, Kane River has a black writer director who made a movie that showcases a mix of cultures in Louisiana that's really unique. Kane uh, River takes a wider societal view, though. It's not as much about or it's a bit about like individual people but also about the society as a whole um and there's a really sweet romantic story that goes with it too but it also discusses racism in a way that very few other movies have um the story of the movie itself is pretty dr tragic too the director whose name is horace jenkins passed away after the movie was screened uh only one time and it didn't mm -hmm. get wider distribution, so it was lost until some people rediscovered it in 2013, and then Criterion Channel premiered it virtually in 2020. So it's a really important piece of film history that I think Criterion fans would really enjoy, and if you haven't seen it yet, now is the time to check it out on the Criterion Channel. Uh, hope this voicemail wasn't too long. I love the show. Can't wait to hear what else you all end up covering, and see you later. Oh my gosh, thank you so much, Robert. Yeah, wow. I think we're both taking a look at this film now. I am. No, I'm seeing it's also on Mubi as well. I have no idea how long it will be on Mubi, but it looks like there's multiple ways. If for some reason you're listening to this and you don't have a Criterion Channel subscription uh, and you might have a movie subscription, it's also there. This looks so interesting. I will absolutely check this out this week. This No, it sounds uh, phenomenal. Just to give our listeners a non-spoilery overview uh cane river is set near nacogdoches in one of the first free communities of color uh richard romaine plays peter meteor home to fight for his land and tommy metric plays the headstrong maria mathis reluctant to succumb to his charms just because he's the scion of a famous family together they confront schisms of class and color that threaten to keep them apart and that's still royal america today it, it looks amazing i'm just looking at a couple stills yeah and also that story reminds me a lot of a movie we also talked about i think losing ground you and i talked about that film about how kathleen yeah. collins also um 
ended up paving the way for other black female f- film directors, but she was someone who in her lifetime, she made this film later in life and died. A really, it, it had some festival circuits, but never really mm-hmm. got distribution in her lifetime. And places like movie and criterion are also, you know, picking that up and making sure that we are seeing these films made by these directors who sadly didn't get to see their work. Um, seen by wider audiences mm-hmm. in their lifetimes so that's also yeah. a very beautiful if as well if also heartbreaking uh story yeah yeah i am also seeing here that it did receive a blu-ray release in august of 2020 so it's out there i mean i i'm i'm gonna go check it out before it leaves the channel yeah, hopefully same. i'll get to report back before uh that that happens um thank you so much robert yeah thank you oh my gosh what a great what a great email voicemail yeah love it Love it. Speaking of mail, Mackenzie, we do have one more letter, um, this time written from our friend Brandon, who's written it in a couple times before. He writes, hello, friends. Very excited that you are covering Dr. Strangelove this week. Not just one of my favorite comedies, but also an impeccable physical release from Criterion that contains some of the best ancillary ephemera they've ever included in the set. The Strategic Air Command top secret folder is packed with goodies, specifically the miniature Holy Bible and Russian phrase book oh, wow. is hilarious and is one of my favorite physical trinkets I've ever gotten when buying a movie. Criterion, of course, is known for the amazing special features they pack onto their discs, but this got me thinking about some of the other, other more tangible extras they've done. The first ones that jump out into my mind are the Odorama card included in the beautiful polyester release and the extremely well-done mail-order jewelry catalog that comes with uncut gems. Yes, familiar with that one myself. Uh, Brandon finishes his email by asking you and I, Mackenzie, do either of you have any favorite physical extras you've gotten in a Criterion release? Is this something you wish they did more of? Thanks and love the show. Brandon, hold that thought. I'll be right back. Mm -hmm. Uh, Think of your thing. I only have one, so we're good. Okay, so for the listener, I just ran halfway across my own home to grab my physical copy of Dr. Strangelove, which I meant to have on my person before so I could show Mackenzie exactly what Brandon is oh, talking about. Oh, I was about. seeing it on the page so, and I was like, what the hell? Yeah, so for our listeners, that is me opening the top secret R plan folder. And inside oh, we have what looks like a Playboy. That is amazing. What? with um the absolutely stunning and inappropriate for turgidson tracy reed as miss scott on the cover she looks gorgeous, <laughs> and that's where the she's beautiful and that is where all the you know essays for the film are oh, and then one so of the fun. essays is also included on this mckenzie that's so fun i'm showing mckenzie the top secret document in which uh slim pickens in the field actually reads to his crew so yeah i mean Brandon is not wrong, Mackenzie. Like, this is one of, like, the best, uh, <laughs> like, you know, add-ons that they've ever done. They they present the essays and the, like, dives into the film and supplemental material that's written in such a creative way, um, showing Mackenzie. Yeah, like, it looks like a magazine. Listener. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and, uh, and the one other thing Brandon mentioned in his email was this. This is where they put the cast and crew. Oh, I love that. 
And for the listener, I'm showing Mackenzie. The tiny it is holy a, Bible. Uh, one inch by one and a half inch copy of the Bible and Russian catchphrases. And that is where Criterion has listed there about the restoration that they typically mm-hmm. include in the physical release as well as the cast and crew. Oh, that's fun. And there's also such amazing phrases as Pamogitia, uh, which is a, a butchering of the Russian pronunciation of help. <laughs> so anyway... I uh, ran halfway across my house and I'm out of breath <laughs> just to show Mackenzie this stupid little supplements. Um, but Mackenzie, what are some of what are some of your favorites if you well, have any? Like Brandon, it's asked. funny. I only know of one really that I've personally gotten, and it was in Dazed and Confused. Which here, let me run across my office now. fantastic podcasting i know um i still have to hang it but dazed and confused comes with a gorgeous poster a huge poster i can post it on our instagram if y'all want to see it um it's a gorgeous poster and i'm not even the biggest like dazed and confused isn't my favorite movie of all time i do love the movie i own it obviously on criterion and i got this poster along with it um but i framed it because it's just a gorgeous poster but that's the only criterion yeah. I've ever gotten with like an extra thing in it. And I would love it if they did more stuff like that. Like I would love posters yeah. or, or, or fun yeah. themed things like that. I, I love that polyester has the odorama card. I think that's absolutely perfect for that film. Um, yeah, I would mm-hmm. love criterion to do more. I understand that money is a huge aspect of it. And so like, don't bankrupt yourself criterion please trying to to add stuff in but it would be cool to have extra stuff even if it's just some posters or a print or something like a mini print or um yeah i definitely would be down to see more criterion stuff so sadly i only have one example that i can think of because i physically have it in my own house but um yeah i would love criterion to do more extras yeah i mean i've i've uh i love a lot of the art that they include uh i know that i have a beautiful print from um johnny toe's uh throwdown uh which is a mixed martial arts film which is like probably one of the best mixed martial arts films i've seen in the collection it's like really inspiring but there's a beautiful piece of artwork um that if you fold out uh you could frame but it's got the essay on the back and that's that's like usually the problem Mm, with the included artwork that you could frame is that your essays on the back it isn't that big a deal, um, but something more akin to what's included in Doctor Strangelove, uh, Wes Anderson's releases uh, for Moonrise Kingdom, as well as the Grand Budapest Hotel, includes things like a, uh, a mini a ranger book, like a junior what? ranger book in Moonrise Kingdom. Um, there's a map of the island that Moonrise Kingdom takes place on, which I have framed, Excuse um, me? which is a beautiful print. It's like those are like yeah. the two of the yeah. Wes Andersons I don't own <laughs> criteria yeah, that I, come I, with I know. stuff. And so I'm like excited. I knew, I know we were talking about uh, Asteroid City, and you're like, I gotta finish my West collection. Um, so yeah, no, the Grand Budapest Hotel is also a great one. Um, I typically find, and we're getting really granular with this, but I typically find that these are only ever included uh, in digi packs, which are these Mackenzie. I'm showing Mackenzie the cardboard. Dr. Strangelove packaging. Yeah. I think it's just easier to include in these. Uh, I have I have Wes's Bad Dad trilogy, so Royal Tenenbaums, Steve Zissou, and um, Darjeeling. And those are three uh, plastic cases, and they just don't, ha- they don't have anything besides the essays. 
but even then his essays are always presented very like almost in canon mm. like they're presented in like like the bottle rocket one is presented in the five-year plan notebook oh from bottle that's rocket. that's fun um yeah so fun stuff like that i i get a real like i get a real tickle out of stuff like that i think it's really fun um but yeah, I, I, I agree with Brandon. I think they could do more of this. I, I get it, like you said, like it's a money thing a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, well, Brandon, thank you uh, for your email, your question, and letting us get on that really uh, really nuanced tirade about uh, <laughs> the, the fun aspects of collecting physical media, uh, something I love a lot. Um, yeah, I'm excited for Mackenzie to get her West film. So I can see him. She can have those. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Mackenzie, it is that time of the episode mm-hmm. where we find out what you are connecting to Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the month. So please. I was looking through my watch list and trying to think of something that would maybe fit in with Dr. Strangelove. And so I do not think this film is a satire, but it is from the 60s. It is also talking about war and the Cold War and the... Um, I would say the the short the the shortcomings of our government as well as other things but I also will say I know nothing about this film outside of the fact that I know the broad strokes of themes and that my queen Angela Lansbury is in this film so I will read you the letterbox synopsis and let's see if you all can guess what I'm gonna say When you've seen it all, you'll swear there's never been anything like it. Near the end of the Korean War, a platoon of U.S. soldiers are captured by communists and brainwashed. Following the war, the platoon is returned home, and Sergeant Raymond Shaw is lauded as a hero by the rest of his platoon. However, the platoon commander, Captain Bennett Marco, finds himself plagued by strange nightmares and soon races to uncover a terrible plot in spine number 803, the Manchurian Candidate. Ooh. So I'm connecting... Frank Sinatra making Frank his Criterion Connection debut. <laughs> yes, and Angela Lansbury. I know a lot of people think of this as like the father of political thrillers, right? And it was the, and it came out kind of similar time period as Strangelove, where I think Strangelove is the more satirical take on it. I, I was just interested to put these films next to each other to see maybe a more even serious take on similar themes in terms of cold war paranoia and communist paranoia and things like that so i'm interested i again i know nothing about the like actual contents of this film so i'm very curious how it will end up pairing but you know we'll see hey i've never seen manchurian candidate so i'm very excited to check it out let's do it i mean mitchell bupre at the letterbox show who famously gives everything a very low rating every time i click a movie i love i see mitchell has a low rating on it they gave this five stars so i feel like that says a lot from yes. a five-star rating from mitchell yeah i follow mitchell as well and mitchell's always one of the first people to pop up in that mm-hmm. like your friends who have watched it and it's always two and a half two stars <laughs> all respect very, i love them they aggressive. have dis- they have discerning tastes <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. um but i whenever i see a film highly rated by them i'm always like oh shit i gotta pay attention to this oh shit yeah big uh i might edit this out but big uh discovery for me recently was miracle mile starring uh tom cruise's co-star in top gun um as uh, the 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 individual plays Goose, uh, Miracle Mile by uh, Walter mm. Hill, one of those just random movies that Mitchell's given like five stars and is just like so good. Oh, I love um, it. So yeah, if Mitchell likes it, we, we we might like it. Who knows? Uh, 
anyway, <laughs> Mackenzie, do you got anything else? That's all from me. I'm excited. Hey, if I get one thing out of this movie, it's Angela Lansbury, and that's all I can ask for. So that's all I can ask for. Well, until then, see you next week on the Criterion Connection. that out of <laughs> what's up oh i lost you for a second but i'm back oh, okay <laughs> all right